for a little while I had a studio with a couple of other cartoonists in, in Greenpoint. It was a it was a pretty cool time in my life. Yeah, when did you uh, when did you move back home? I moved back to Nova Scotia in uh, to stay in 2017. The timing was certainly right. I mean, you looked out pandemic-wise. It seems like a much better place to ride it out than, than New York City. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of room out here to, to stretch out, uh, stretch your arms. And in New York, I never had a room, like a bedroom that was bigger than like a kitchen table, I feel. So <laughs> that would have been tough. Were you expecting the entire time to, to move back eventually? I don't know. Um, growing up here, the message was almost always... Um, that, that, that was maybe not going to be in the cards because, because you had to leave to work, to have opportunity. And so I, I always tried to maybe picture myself somewhere else, but it never, it never clicked. And then when I came home, I, I was like, oh, this is where I should be. You mean New York didn't click? Yes, in Toronto, Halifax. I was in Victoria for a while. I was in different places. Just city life in general? Maybe. I enjoyed a lot of things about living in the cities, but I think that I was possibly made to be in the country, or at least here in my home. Did you move out here specifically to pursue life as a cartoonist? A bit, yeah. It seemed that in New York, everybody was working harder to be better at their job than they were the day before. It seemed almost like the nature of the place. And that was very beneficial when you're young and and kind of new at your job because there's no sitting on your laurels at all. There's just, there's just kind of a hustle that's very, uh, you know, montage. You know, the movie montage where you're walking down the street and everyone's walking and they're very busy. <laughs> and uh, for like that kind of kick in the ass, I think, is a is a good thing to have when you're starting out in your career doing something like what I do because there's no shortage of people climbing the ladder around you and then you're really aware of the ladder. I don't know if I've heard anybody put it like exactly that way as far as a lot of artists I think cite that the hustle as a bit of a downside to living in a place like like New York mm-hmm. because it's it's mandatory. People aren't just being motivated by choice. You kind of it's kind of shit or get off the pot in a place like this. Yeah. Yeah, it is. But in a smaller city, you can be a you can be a big fish in a small bowl and be like, "I'm the biggest fish in this little last bowl," and uh, and you can get kind of stagnated. I think, and in a, in a, in a place like New York, where the sky is the limit for as far as like success and and um, what what you what you think is success anyway, it, there's no end to the examples of what it is you could be doing. And where it is you could be in 10 years or something like that. You know, I think, uh, uh, especially in the arts where there's no clear path, it's not like you're going step by step into something. Uh, if I, if I was a professor, I'd be making tenure and then I'd whatever. Uh, but in the, in like doing things like what we do, it's, it's a huge sprawl of things that you might do or could do. And so to have that kind of, I think, uh, helpful, maybe helpful anxiety, if that is a word for it, uh, uh, watching what other people are doing with their talent is useful to a point. You don't want, I don't know if I was made to live with it at all times, but I'm also just not, people are like, they're either like a New Yorker do or die in a lot of ways. But in the end, I, I, you know, I was like, I miss my home. 
<laughs> I put on my straw hat back on and went back to the city of my overalls. I'm literally wearing overalls. I should say this isn't a video <laughs> podcast. You'd, yeah, but if you did have a straw in your mouth, I think that would probably be that would probably come across in the audio too. Yes, yeah, yeah. There's there's like a seed between my teeth. I know a few of the Pizza Island people that you alluded to. And I assume that that's also a big advantage, right? It's just sort of being around people who are doing something similar. Yeah, that creative energy. You would look around the studio and see what other people are doing. You'd be like, God, that's good. I was doing something good. It uh, uh, it's, it's helpful. There's certainly not a lot of cartoonists where I am right now in the, in the village, but, uh, but I'm pretty secure in, in what I'm doing. And I, uh, got my kids here so I can't socialize with anyone anyway because I've got a baby crawling on me all the time. It's one of the questions hanging over the book at the beginning is, you know, whether or not recently having graduated from college, whether or not cartooning is a feasible or being an artist is a feasible path forward because like frankly for most people it isn't. No, it's not. I got very lucky, I have to say, doing what I do. I got into comics at a very fortunate time. Because Harker Vagrant came out on the internet in 2007, 2008. And the internet was still small enough that people still went to people's websites, stuff like that. Not these aggregated sites like Instagram. And um, uh, the the competition for, for people's attention wasn't as great as it is now. It was, it was a smaller world and you could get noticed and you could create a fan base because people were starting to flock to the internet for content. Uh, so I, I benefited from the timing of my entrance and by the choice of my, my content, which wasn't a, a cynical thing like, oh, I, if I do this, I'll get viewers. It was just doing what I wanted to do, but having uh, – having no real understanding that there would be um, that there was an appetite for uh, variation in, in what was, what was available in comics and online. There was a lot of, of course, those buddy comics and, and um, video game type stuff. And, uh, and I, you know, I came up with the stuff that was kind of like satirical history stuff. And it was a bit niche, I thought, but, but it spoke to what a lot of people were interested in people like myself. And so I, I was lucky. Uh, and I, I, as soon as I realized that I, I was ambitious about it, but of course I, no one would have ever guessed that that was coming. Also extremely shareable is a big part of it too. I mean, a lot of these people were doing these like really long form web comics at the time and you were doing effectively these strips that could really be sensed far and wide. Yeah, very gag-like stuff there. So so shareable. You can print them out. People, you know, college professors put them on their door and stuff like that. And uh, and they weren't serialized strip either. They weren't like a story that you had to follow, which is a a tougher sell sometimes. Not all the time. I mean, some some comics that are serialized stories are the p- most popular ones out there. But um, but the the it was just uh, when I saw that I was able to make a living from this, I. I, I grasped at it, but I would never have been able to predict it because no, when, when I came into, when I, when I graduated from university, that, that question, like, can you make a living in the arts? It was very, um, it was looking bad. <laughs> it was looking pretty bad. 
I, I tried. I went and I, I worked in different museums over time and I was interested in that. I was like, oh, maybe I'll get a museum studies degree. But every museum that I worked in, they were all like, well, maybe we'll shut down next year because there's no money and nobody comes to see us and uh, there's no jobs. So uh, we can only give you shitty pay and shitty hours. And uh, uh, maybe that's it for us. <laughs> Which one of these non-lucrative, uh, tricky fields do I want to go into at the end of the day? Yeah, yeah. And I... Uh, I have to hand it to Jeffrey Rowland, who who was the first person to offer to sell a T-shirt for me. And he really opened the door to what turned into my career, uh, making making a living off of making comics. Prior to the first serialization of Ducks Online, you know, especially when you're out here, you know, far from home. How would you describe the period of your life that you cover in this new book? How did you explain the job to people? Well, between 2005 and 2008, I worked for two years in the oil sands of Northern Alberta. And that is, uh, those are, those are mine sites where they dig up bitumen, which is sandy deposits that contain oil that you have to extract from the sand because it's it's like melded in there and the extraction process is very resource heavy you know in in texas you can drill down and you hit oil and it's very like uh uh you know it's like jed clampett style right um it's just bubbling up texas tea yeah texas tea but in northern alberta it's mixed in with the sand so uh so you have the oil sands and you have to mine the sand and then extract the oil from the sand to get to get the crude oil. And and so I worked there on those sites, and there are several several of them around the town of Fort McMurray, which is uh, which was booming at the time that I was there. Um, it hit in two thousand eight the highest price that it ever hit yet, about one hundred and fifty dollars a barrel. For uh, comparison, in um, last year during the pandemic, oil was worth less than zero a barrel coming out of, uh, well, I think just less than zero a barrel general. To say that it was a booming at that time is not even, um, not even doing it justice. It was unbelievable. The amount of people flocking there for jobs and how exponentially the place was growing, like the town just expanding beyond belief. And coming in with all of the issues with boom town, like uh, very hard to get a place in town. The rents were sky high, all these things. So even uh, you couldn't get a, you couldn't get a worker to work in any of the fast food places. And when you did, like they were, they were getting paid triple anywhere else in the country. And uh, um, people were just crying for workers. A lot of uh, immigrants, a lot of people from, uh, from, regionally depressed areas within our own country. And that's where I come in because Nova Scotia is part of the Maritimes, the Maritime provinces. Uh, And I'm from Cape Breton, which is an island in Nova Scotia, which historically has been exporting workers to, uh, to wherever the machines of capitalism are running in our country for a hundred years. And I am a part of that pattern because uh, economically, we were at our nadir at that time. And, um, uh, and I went, I went with all of my neighbors and the people from my community that there were, there were 
articles in the newspaper at that time talking about how empty the schools were, empty desks, uh, people that you used to see in the streets all the time, and they were gone because of how many people were leaving out west for work because there was nothing at home. I worked in the tool crib. I had this massive student loan after graduating from university with my history and answer degree, and all I had to really show for it was this debt and no particular jobs except for minimum wage ones that you get with an arts degree, which appalled my parents because they thought that education was a ticket to like a good thing, like a guarantee, but it's not. I'm guessing like they weren't in a similarly relatively privileged situation to have had that. So they expected like the next generation having gone to school. No, 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 they never went to university. That's why they expected that it would just automatically open these doors. No, no. uh, We were the first in our, in our line to, you know, to go to university. I had a few aunts and uncles who went that were sort of younger. Uh, It was the expansion of school student loan programs in Canada in the 1960s and seventies that, that made my entrance into university possible, but it was too late for my parents. And, uh, and, uh, and to them, you know, they, they saw people with university degrees being teachers and nurses and doctors and things like this. And that's what they wanted for us. But I didn't, you know, I, I was like, well, I don't want to be a nurse. I want, I want to do art. And they were like, Oh God, (laughs) that sounds terrible. (laughs) We want you to be safe in the world and we want you to we don't want you to struggle, but um, but I, I forged ahead with my my silly arts degree anyway, and then I, I had this loan. So anyway, I, I left, and my uncle told me to work in the tool crib, and um, because he had worked in he had worked in Sudbury in the seventies, and Sudbury was a place where they mined nickel, and um, he said you don't have to have a um, you don't have to have a trade for that, but you can get a job and live in the camps. And that's where you make the real money because you can camps pay for your room and board. So you don't have to, you don't have to pay rent or for, for food when you live in the camps. And that means you can save more. You just work and work and work and you save, you put everything away. And that's the appeal of the camps because in town, the, the rents were exorbitant. And, and of course, groceries and things were expensive as well because of where the town was. And so I, I eventually do get a job in the camp and I'm working in the tool crib, which is something like working in a warehouse where you're, you're, you are, uh, you're filling orders. Yeah. You're filling orders. You are supplying trades people with their, uh, with their needs, like their tools. We were everything under $2,500, which means anything from a nail to a generator. Uh, so uh, all of the electricians, all of the welders, all the, all the, um, like the pipe fitters, iron workers, whoever they were, there would be all these different trades, people coming in and needing different stuff. And you would outfit them with whatever they needed, disposables or tools. And, uh, and they would sign things out and bring them back, or they would just, whatever you need, you had to keep an inventory and you had to keep ordering things in and you had to keep them from stealing stuff, which they did anyway. Um, and, uh, and you got to live in the camp. After reading the book, I reread some of the strips, and I, th- I think it's the conclusion to the final one, if I remember correctly, you saying, I feel a lot of things with regard to that point in your life and, and all that you had been through. Was 
I'm guessing that that it took a lot of time to really sort of process some of those thoughts in order to really be able to sit down and 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 start working on a strip or a book. Yeah, definitely. Uh, well, when you start and you have years of memories to go through, it's all just a big sprawl. It's like uh, it's like you you have a table in front of you and you've laid out like your decks of cards, which are all your memory, but they're they're just in a in a big jumble in front of you and you're like, okay, I gotta, I gotta lay out this deck of cards into like the, into like a, a, a linear set of panels that everyone will recognize as a book. And, um, and that's difficult because, because no one's memory is, is just a chronological set of events. It is a series of things that you remember and the emotions attached and how they link to other memories. And, uh, you know, it's all the, it's all the synapses going off all the time. Um, all the senses that you feel and the weight of the things that you carry. So, so yes, it, it took a long time to sort it out. The strips were probably a good foundation. Maybe all but one of them. I don't think this was in the book, but there's a story about you. A woman. A, a sex worker in the, in yeah. the bathroom. I don't know why that one got cut. Because there's quite a number of things that didn't make it into the book. There's, there's, uh, and some of them don't really have a reason. And that one is not in there for any particular reason, but I uh, only because, in all honesty, the book was so huge that if if I kept adding more scenes in, then um, uh, it would just it would just be unreadable. It would be so big, and there are entire people in there that are not, like uh, my younger sister worked with me, and she's not in the book at all. And but she was there for four months. The book does a really good job of this. And I say this because I read a lot of comics that really kind of just read like a series of vignettes, you know, like, a, you know, some snapshots and stories from that time. But it mm-hmm. but but at a certain point, you know, you 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 do a good job of building a broader narrative. And, and that's when I'm guessing some of those scenes end up getting cut. Yeah, well, they have to coalesce into a larger message. And into uh, a broader picture because that that is what life is, isn't it? You're you're going through. You're not you're not uh, making defining moments every day. You're just living your life, and uh, and you you realize what you're looking at in retrospect. Were there false starts with this book? No. When you finally sat down to work on it in earnest, it, it, you just kind of plowed through. No, because I took a year to write it first. This was something that you had been thinking about for a long time. And and I guess based on the strips, it was something that you were at least considering making a comic of. Yeah, yeah. no, I made that those strips in 2014 because uh, sort of to, to test the waters for myself and for an audience. And, um, and then I took a year to write the entire book as a as a script, which I did on Final Draft, the, the kind of the movie writing app. Um, because it's all dialogue driven and, um, and that took, that took finessing, you know, I I tinkered with that a lot. And then, uh, and then I just sat down and started drawing it page by page. It's interesting that the, that the ducks as a metaphor have been there, you know, at least since that strip. And I'm, I'm guessing before that, at what time was it clear that this big tragedy of all these waterfowl served as a pretty good metaphor for your own experiences. I I don't know. Uh, on site at that time when it happened, I was there. Obviously, uh, it was the first time that the international community 
turned around and took notice of what was happening in Fort McMurray. And I had been there for a while. And like, no one was really talking about Fort McMurray. Even in, in my university, even like the politically engaged kids were not talking about Fort McMurray. They were talking about other other places. Like, you know, the, there was lots of talk of Hurricane Katrina and, and uh, FEMA, I guess, and, and other like other like world issues. And Fort McMurray was under everyone's radar somehow, even though it was this gigantic economic engine in Canada. And so much was happening there. And then, uh, of course, I was seeing a lot of humanity and crisis around me. And then those ducks flew into the pond and it made the front page of the New York Times and it brought Greenpeace over and brought all this stuff happening. And you're like, of course, the like the ducks are a tragedy. I think 2008 was one of the worst years for accidents on Highway 63, which is the highway that links Fort McMurray to Edmonton. They called it the Highway of Death. I said there were a couple of different deaths on the site where I worked. I had been reading articles around that time of uh, deformed fish in the water, Lake Athabasca, and uh, about uh, the indigenous communities in Fort Chip and Fort Mackay saying that they had they had rare cancers that had to be linked to the oil sands. And of course, there was a like what what I would say mental health sort of crisis going on in, among the worker population of the camps. And all of this was just of no notice. But when the ducks flew into the pond and it was news, then these oil companies come out with their cap in their hand and they're like, sorry, uh, this won't happen again. And we're very sad that it happened. And we're going to take measures to make sure they started installing anti-waterfowl guns and stuff, or like noise, noise devices uh, and putting up scarecrows and whatever else. And, and like, you know, they were caught doing something bad. And uh, and they went had to they went to like court over it and stuff. They were like they had to pay fines and things. And um, and of course it was terrible. But it was also only one thing. And uh, and so it was easy at the time to make the correlation. Plus, the ducks are these migratory animals, uh, which is the same thing that all the people were doing. Obviously, the metaphor is right there. And they got stuck in the oil. Something you point out in both the book and, and the strips is, as you mentioned, there's the scarecrows and, and these noise machines. It's just this like tacit understanding between you and the people in the camp that this is just the company effectively doing lip service, right? Is, is kind of papering over, like knowing that the ducks aren't this stupid. Yeah. Or that like it could happen again. Or that it's wrong to have this thing here in the first place. Uh, to have something so hazardous and gigantic and, and, uh, but it's easy for me to say that I, I made money off of it. I, 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 you know, a lot of people's livelihoods depend on it. And it's very easy to say from, from New York city or from somewhere else that like these things shouldn't exist because you, you don't depend on, you don't feed your family with it. Right. It's a, it's a complicated thing all around. And, and, uh, 
that might be an easy way out of a question to be like, wash your hands and be like, oh, it's so complicated that I can't even deal. But, but this is the reason I made the book because, because I don't have answers, but I do have questions and I do have concerns and I do have things that weigh on my mind. Did the experience have the effect of making you more political? Made me more aware, I think. Um, I don't know about political. I feel like that word means different things for different people, to be honest with you. <laughs> yeah, but you, you touch on this really in, in the afterward a lot. Mm-hmm. The ecological question, but also the the question of displaced indigenous people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know anything, you know, going into that stuff. And I didn't even really have questions about it. And uh, certainly afterwards, I a more open ear for things like that. Because, because when people are saying, oh, we're dying, we have rare cancers. And, and uh, everyone around them is like, oh, I'm not really concerned about that. That's fucked up. And uh uh and they must like how do they feel when when like when like the ducks got national news or anything else and be like, We're dying. Yeah, we're human beings. Yeah, we're human beings and we're suffering. But uh but of course like they they're it's their home and they, they don't want you know, they they're not like fuck the ducks. They're like they're like, We don't want this happening to them either. We don't it, it's just it it makes you tune in to the things that you were too privileged to to have looked over before but and and i was you know i i was 20 in my early 20s and i had grown up in a in a society the canadian society that congratulated itself for its good behavior and and i had taken history and anthro degrees and we hadn't talked about residential schools we hadn't talked about the legacy of colonial violence i considered myself to be educated on those, like on not those things, but like on things, and and uh, and I didn't have the right questions to ask because I, I had I hadn't I had even like I had gone to school for what I thought was the like the education that that would have like armed me with knowledge, and there were gigantic holes in it, and uh, and then it's embarrassing to to like come face to face with how ignorant you are and and that is the recurring <laughs> that, that, that's a recurring issue <laughs> i would say for everyone yeah 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 you really threw yourself into uh the middle of a lot of this and and not everybody i mean i'm guessing at least like based on these experiences from the books like not everybody comes out of that experience with that same awareness, or at least they don't really embrace it in the same way. Maybe not, but, um, but, uh, others, others do. And, um, and certainly I hope that the world is, is like moving forward. Uh, you know, at that time, the internet being so small and, and we, we didn't really have the same conversations going that we do now and, and the same access to information, but, but we've gone through, however flawed it was the, the whole truth and reconciliation thing. And, um, uh, uh, and, and people are aware more of the legacy of, of colonialism and than than they ever were when I was young, certainly young people are. And I hope things are different. I don't know what it's like to be in Fort McMurray right now. 
because I haven't been there since 2008. And I know some people are going to read the book and be like, this isn't the way it is. And of course not. It was, it was several years ago. It, it doesn't purport to be current. No. It's, it's, a, it's a snapshot. No, but, but people, are, people take a place like that very personally. You know, it could be their home. It could be something they care about. And of course, oil in Canada is very polarizing. So uh, I imagine some people will not care for the book. Because it's not the world that they know or that they want to know or or to promote. But uh, uh, and 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 Fort Mackay is is uh, economically um, invested in in oil. They, they've done very well. They they run their own companies and uh, and they they are a real. Um, uh, powerhouse in that sense, but what, what choice did they have? The, the oil companies literally right on top of them. It's it's complicated stuff. I, I it's uncomfortable to even talk about because I can't speak for anybody. I I don't I don't know. I don't know. You did touch on this in the book, as certainly as it pertains to you, and at least one of the fellow workers is. You were previously discussing the health impacts on indigenous people and people in the surrounding area, but I'm guessing that there's has been or will be a lot of long-term health impacts to the workers. Yes, I imagine so. And yet when you have a transient workforce, I mean, I don't know about within the city of Fort McMurray. I, I, haven't, I haven't read anything about the Wood Buffalo region. But when you have people working in the, uh, in the camps long-term, whatever health problems they take, whatever health problems they have and develop, they take home with them. And how are you going to measure that? Because they don't live there. They commute from the far reaches of the continent to, you know, from like the West Coast, BC, to the East Coast of Newfoundland and, and beyond. There were, there were workers from the North Sea in, uh, uh, from, you know, the UK. There were a lot of Filipino workers. And if they develop, if they inhale carcinogens or, or anything like that and something happens... It's not going to happen in the camp. It's going to happen in when they leave, uh, and and I don't know how to how anyone's going to measure that from a, a workplace that's so scattered. But I have thought about this, and of course, you you know probably that I lost my sister to cancer. She worked out there for many years. I have thought about it. So you were there. Two years all told, and and there's a there's kind of a year break in the middle. And granted, like two years is a lot longer than a lot of people say at a lot of jobs. But I'm always curious, like knowing that likely the job is going to be a relatively temporary one for you. Like how that how that impacts your relationship with the the work and the people working there. Um, it was always a position of privilege of mine that I could leave and that I did leave, and that. Uh, that puts into focus my um, uh, my interactions with some of my worker colleagues, I think, because I, and they pointed out to me often, you know, if you don't like it, there's the door. Like no one's waiting on you for the next meal. Nobody is, is depending on you for a house or roof over their head or whatever. And cause these are people who have families and, uh, or who have things to pay off. I was completely unattached. I had no house, no car, no children, no husband, no whatever. It wouldn't have hurt me to leave, except for that I was in debt. And except that I was poor, that was all. 
and and I was determined to stay. And I, I was like, I have just as much right to be here as anyone. But uh, but it was always my my privilege that I could leave when other people had um, obligations there that that had them staying. And and for some people who had didn't have the qualifications to work anywhere else, in a sense, they were coming from say the East Coast, and they had no uh, training in uh, in trades or or something. Uh, and in the tool crib, that's where we got a lot of resumes because of the same reason that I got a job in the tool crib. You didn't need a trade. So we got a lot of resumes from people who only had education up until like grade eight. And, um, and they were 50. And, uh, and they, they had maybe teenage children still. But they, they lost their job in the factory or in the fishing or in the coal mine or wherever. And there are no jobs at home. And where else are they going to go? And I wasn't in their position. And, uh, and if they were out there and they were bitter about it, or if they didn't like it and they were having a bad day, and if they were rude to me, I don't hold it against them. And, uh, and that's different from somebody harassing me. You know what I mean? If you're out there and you have a job like that, you, you, you can easily step through the different ways that people treat you. And, and, um, because you see them for, for the people that they, they are. And, and uh, it's just not, it's not black and white. I mean, that's one thing, but you know, you deal with the topic of assaults in here too, which I'm guessing you very much were not, that was not an isolated incident or incidents for you that that was probably in a sense kind of baked into the culture there as far as people looking the other way or, you know, or, or some of the victim blaming that happened. Sure. I, I think that, I think that it happens a lot and not a lot of people talk about it. And I don't think that most people within their right mind, or I don't think that a lot of, a lot of people out there are sort of in their right mind when you're, you are, you go, you go out to these camps in this very hyper-masculine environment and you are re-socialized and, um, and I asked the question through the book, are the, you throw the book, you know, are, are people like this really? Or are they, are, are they, is this who they really are? And I, you know, I, it's hard to say, but loneliness, isolation, uh, sort of a, a toxic work culture will act on you. And you would be surprised what happens. You would be surprised in yourself. Men who are violent towards me, living a life with children, happy, happy dads. I, I experienced harassment from people who I know were uh, quote unquote good fathers because that's the culture and it's painful to look at in the face. And it's not something that you take home and talk about. It's not even something that I think, the men who do it like want to recognize who would want to look at that part of themselves and say, yeah, that's me. They would just say it really sucked working out there. It sucked and not really examine how they treated other people. 
because as a woman speaking as a woman, I knew that I was less than a person to some people. I was just an example of a woman that walked around for people to comment on because there were so few of them. And it dehumanized me to be that. And it gets to you after a while. It doesn't take long to get to you. This, I don't know if empathy is even the right word, but this kind of relationship to those things that have happened to you, is that, is that something that you, you developed over time? I think so. Yeah, yeah. I think it takes a long time to wrap your head around those things. It's a lifetime of dealing with, with being treated that way. Uh, the repercussions are, are long and deep and, and different for everybody. Um, because I think there is some denial and think, you know, there's a scene in there where I talking to a, a friend and she says, yo, I went to a party and I passed out and I woke up, my pants were unbuttoned. And I was like, holy shit, are you okay? And she laughed. Like she's off. almost saying it casually. Yeah. She's like, yeah, you know, assholes. And, uh, I was shocked, but I think that that's her, that was her way of, of, um, of, she needed to laugh it off that she, she had to. And maybe now she thinks about it differently, but I don't know. I gave the book to uh, my old boss. His name is Ryan in the book, but I gave it to him to read and, and he found it painful to read. Um, he, and for, for like the, how women are, are treated in the book, he said, he said, you know, I think, I think things happened to them that I could tell now in retrospect, but we didn't talk about it at the time. And by the way, I, I spoke to him before I made the book. I was like, I would like to tell your story here because he is a person who dealt with um, a, a sort of a mental health crisis of his own and, and uh, drug abuse. Um, and I thought it was very generous of him to let me to let me be honest about what he went through. You're tackling other people's stories too, but there are some very deeply personal parts of this mm -hmm. book that we discussed. Was it clear that they needed to be a part of the book from the beginning? Yeah. Yeah. I never wanted to be just mine, but just my story. That would be a disservice to how, how broad and how much, uh, are, well, that's not the right word. That's not what keeps me up at night. <laughs> um, I, I, I think about people all the time. I think about things that I've seen and, um, and it's so, it's so complicated to me, uh, all of these things, uh, and, and that I, that I keep kind of in my mind and in my heart and, and I needed to tell as many people's stories as I could beyond just myself, or if I didn't do that then the reader would never know why I really needed to make this book. <laughs>